I'm Dan McGregor. Welcome to my podcast, The Wise Machine, where we look at innovation, tech, and AI. The title of today's session is The Culture of Iterative. I've got a great guest joining me today. It's Bertrand Rajon from uh, Nestle, where he's uh, taking the role of disruption and ecosystem lead. So hello, uh, Bertrand. Welcome. Thank you, and very happy to be with you today, Dan. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, well, it's uh, nice that we can have a chat, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to uh, getting your thoughts and ideas on some of the topics that we're about to unpack. Um, now, you're a person who knows a little bit about the power of taking the iterative approach. Can you just tell me a little bit about your role and um, what that means to you? Absolutely. And and I think what the iterative approach is a very interesting concept when you've been 30 years at Nestle. And uh, that's how you build your career. So that what happened to me. I had 20 years in the business um, when I was mostly in, the, in Central Europe. I was country responsible country manager, I was a brand manager, I have been responsible for different divisions. But all in all, you find afterwards that it's very important when comes the time of mid-age to think on how you pass over the baton to the next generation. And this is when I joined the training center, the corporate university as we have it. And I was responsible for leadership training covering the whole global top of the pyramid of Nestle. And, and that's when I really understood what iterative can mean to it. Well, thanks so much for that context. And, you know, I totally agree with you, you know, as I um, uh, sort of reflect on my own experiences, you know, it's so important to try to, uh, you know, take the best of our learnings and, uh, and communicate them and support, um, you know, the next generation to, um, improve on what we've done obviously i mean it's uh, not necessarily it's not that the the, the game is over yet but um you know we we want to see collective improvement as a species um across the ages into the future as well and um you know just to go back to um this kind of idea of iteration and the power of iteration in business and you know let's just to explain maybe to the to the listener a little bit about what that means to uh, to us, uh, you know, sort of in this in this role of uh, innovator, or as in in the sort of the startup or the scale up world. And um, for me, iterative was always about um, trying something and discovering something with that process, and then um, circling back around and having another go and making it better and improving it. So you, I always used to use the phrase um, that you must have something to make something. And you can't actually start to create something without kind of making something, but also that it involves a certain amount of breaking of things to actually get to that point as well. So, um, you know, how, how does that uh, sort of ref reflect on your own experiences? Well, very much so. If, and there's two aspects to it. There is a short-term uh, iteration, if I mean, if I may say so, but there is also a long-term one. The long-term one is the one you can observe when you look back at your career, the how things have been improving in a more natural way. The short-term one is maybe a little bit more interesting, is the one you can provoke, is the one that takes you from failures sometimes. When you fail, is because you have not been daring enough, it's because you've not been putting the bar high enough to, to change. And someone comes to you and say, hey, Bertrand, why did you do it like this way? So you either pick up 
as a personal critic or you pick it up as an opportunity to improve. And I'll tell a very little anecdote if you're low on that one, which is the first time we did these business expeditions. He's basically taking people outside of their comfort zone and looking into how a city, a business, an environment is transforming. And we were in a hotel, a very conventional hotel, a Sofitel, if I remember well. I have full respect for Sofitel. And the first question, you take us to disruption and you put us in such a hotel. And you take it personally, at the end, the person is right. The next time you iterate it in a different manner, you bring disruption at its full speed that involves people much deeper. And this is what the short-term iteration has to, to impact on how you can transform yourself and the environment. I love that comment because actually, you know, there's loads of things we can pick up on there. It's maybe the importance of the environment for iteration or for innovation. Um, Also, the clues that we give to the people that we're working with about the amount of respect that we have for them or the way that we see them. And these are often micro clues. But actually, um, you know, what you picked up on as well was the, it's sort of going to touch now on the ego topic because, You know, we live in a world or we came from a world where, um, you know, this idea of winners and, and, and losers and success and failure, and it's very polar, it's very binary, whereas actually... Um, the reality is that we are constantly making little wins and little losses. And actually to ditch the ego and the attachment to the idea of the failure is actually the best lesson that we can learn. And maybe I just use a little story of my own because, you know, when we went, went initially with our first IoT devices into the market, I remember we showed a chip or a PCB one time to one of the customers and he turned around and said, well, that's not a product. And we just explained all these brilliant things that this piece of hardware can do. And actually, you know, it was about asking the next level of question and going to that customer and saying, well, what would make it a product rather than being offended? And uh, he, he actually came back with a very simple answer that it needs a housing. It needs a box on it. It's a, a, a bare PCB is not product-like. And actually, that was a fantastic learning because then we were able to project all of these brilliant ideas into the box that wasn't yet complete. But as far as the customer was concerned, you know, Pandora's box was there to be unwrapped, you know, and it was a it was a whole, uh, you know, sort of opportunity to imagine what could go into that box and what information and services could come out of it. So um, actually, that was a, an interesting example. And I can think of many more, and I'm sure you can as well, where it's so important to ditch the the, the ego and not be, um, you know, hurt or offended by the criticism, but just to learn from it? Well, the, the ego is an interesting one because I think it's we can take ego on the negative side. We can also take ego the positive side, which is first self-esteem, of course, but it's also an alert signal. It tells you something happens. Now, are you able to interpret it towards the right direction or not? That's the question afterwards. What do you make of it? And and your your example is great in the way that, yes, which customer are you serving? If you're serving just the the inside the box, that's maybe fine the PCB, but you're not serving the person inside the box. You're serving the outside the box. And and your ego should be able to warn you, hey, this is when you should react because there is something further than what you had thought and it will protect you. So I love the warning signal of the ego. It hurts sometimes, but if we are able to read it properly, it takes us to the next level.
I love that example because it's exactly the same with physical pain as well. Without physical pain, the human body is, is really struggling to stay alive. And um, actually, you know, it seems like it's an uncomfortable, unnecessary thing in our modern world where we tend to control so much. But actually, uh, you know, we still need it for our survival. And, and like you said about the ego, you know, the, definitely there's two sides to the ego. But, you know, this side that um, actually... Um, the most exciting things are the things which provoke you. They're, that's the, the part that needs our attention. And also thinking about maybe the startup experience or the scale-up experience, a lot of the time, um, we, there's the tasks that we don't feel like doing are the ones that need our most urgent attention on a daily basis. So it helps you to prioritize as well um, to understand you know, what we should be doing um, or what support we need uh, in order to accomplish our tasks. Very true, very true. And, and we need those signals from the outside world because we probably are not self-sufficient. Few people are self-sufficient. We need to be constantly um, incentivized in a way and another to, to get further. But school, university, jobs, family, everything is an incentive that push, pushes you further. And, and your real ego is, is your warning signal, as, as we said before. I really like that perspective. So um, maybe we now jump a little bit. So we talk more generally about culture and we're not talking about short-term iteration or long-term iteration, but the wider culture that's needed to promote this kind of thing. Now, you're working a lot with young people and I think probably young people have quite a sort of a, a culture of iteration in their lives anyway because they're having to adapt to new technologies and new new styles of doing things so quickly. I don't know if you've read probably the book Future Shock by Alvin Toffler. We've had this around now for 50 years and we're living in a post-future shock world, you know, where, um, you know, it, everyone's almost a dinosaur the moment they're born, you know. But um, maybe you can give us a bit of an indication as to how you support the right culture in this, in this, in, in, in iteration and innovation. Yes, I think that's a, I, I like the story of uh, being a dinosaur, dinosaur because uh, 33 years at Nestle, um, I end up not recognizing new people coming in. It's uh, not anymore. Uh, I used to be the youngest and I'm the oldest. I used to be the one that was the promising future and I used to, I'm now the one that promises future for others. And eventually what we happen to be is incompetent. Incompetent in what the new generation is able to bring, which can be technicalities, abilities, capabilities, but the one thing we retain for ourselves is this ability to lead. And, and the ability to lead is much linked to your ability to connect with people, to connect people together. It's also recognizing talent. But you're not able anyway to compete with the next generation. They are much better than you are. And this is why I like to call it the incompetent leader. The ultimate goal of a leader is to become incompetent because then and only then can you rely on your team to make sure that this next generation, you acknowledge they are much better than you, much more competent than you in those areas, but you don't give up your leadership capabilities. You don't give up your directional aspect with them. You support them, you protect them, you make sure that they will succeed. That's your role. But for the rest, don't fight with them. They are fighting in totally different category, not yours anymore. 
It's very interesting. I was watching something about the Industrial Revolution the other day, and there was um, a comment mentioned that the the, uh, the 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 owner of the factory said, "Never give a job to somebody who, when you can't do that job yourself." So you know that was kind of the culture of leaders of of the past. But obviously nowadays, there's no chance that we can take every single specialization, every kind of technical skill, every programming language, every every competence from the business side and the domain side and integrate that into one person. So that's totally, uh, you know, I can really uh, identify with those comments. One thing that I noticed when we were scaling the company, um, Nexio, is that, um, you know, you you start by taking on every task because there's no one else. And then you have to constantly give those tasks away to people who arrive who are better able to do those tasks and it feels counterintuitive because in the corporate world, lots of people are empire building. Um, they're creating the biggest team and they try to defend their position, you know, and politically and so on by having a lot of people report to them. But actually, uh, elite, we find that having a lean squad um, of uh, diverse backgrounds and multidisciplinary skill sets is the way to go. Yes. And, and you know, this is a very intriguing thing that I discovered for myself, the most difficult moment in a corporate world is when you become a leader. Because then you stop purely doing, you still do, there's no other question, but you stop purely doing in something where you start to organize. And this is difficult. I had an example of one lady in my, in my team came to me. She had three people under her, came to me and say, I'd like to take a course on macro programming in Excel and Word. And I was wondering, why do you want that? Because one of my team is better than me, and I need to be at that level. Yes, for sure, but that's part of the past. In the past, you were elevated to the position of a leader because you knew all the jobs in your area, perimeter. It's over you are elevated as a leader because you have the competence to be a leader, not the technical competences. And we need to understand that. This is, and this is counterintuitive, as you say, because it's not because you're the best programmer in Excel that you will be able to be elevated to the level of a leader. You need to display other capabilities and to prove them. How do we, you know, diversity has become a really big buzzword and everyone's sort of promoting it. It's the same with sustainability and words like this. Um, how do we make sure that we harness the real power of diversity? And for me, that means, you know, having uh, extremely uh, sort of different um, sort of mutually compatible personalities and skill sets. How can we How can we integrate that into our culture to make sure that we get the best you know, of all perspectives? For me, diversity, I like to express it as social engagement rather than diversity, because diversity is a good word. However, it, it's a thrive to cover every single exception, kind of. All right? So it's like discontinuities in a way. You identify something that is not in, up you put it in. Gender, handicap, color, whatever that is. I prefer social engagement because social engagement has a broad view that is continuous. And, and for me, it also reflects the way you should approach leadership at the same time. Because what is diversity or social engagement in that case, if not leadership? 
is recognizing talent where they are and promoting and pushing talent where they are and as they are and not as you wish them to be. So sometimes it will be a little bit painful to recognize talent in someone that has a total different one than you may have, that you would never have been able to do the job they do, to cover their abilities and so on. So for me, that is it. It's how can you engage mavericks? How can you make sure that you have people who will be disturbing your fields and your turf as you imagined it and and that's very important because we love me too's they are easy to handle i'm not sure the future is about me too's i really love those comments because you know i'm i see myself as a rebel okay so i was always a little bit um challenging the teacher at school um you know obviously realized i had to get the results to get into university to do the things that i wanted to do always saw education as a little bit of a sort of a, a thing that mainstreams us um, and reduces our sort of imagination or our ability to dream. Um, and, um, you know, thinking back to the early days of Nexiot, what one thing that we did really well was that we, we, we sort of weaponized our naivety. <laughs> so, you know, we set off on this journey and we said, you know, why is it that the, the 30 million shipping containers in the world are not currently monitored and tracked and, you know, and, and sending their data. It just doesn't make sense. And obviously this is something that lots of other people have thought. Um, but it's, um, you know, it's another thing to think or they have the, have the rebel idea, but another uh, thing altogether to actually push that through to some sort of uh, conclusion. Now in your organization, how do you manage that kind of, conflicts or that potential conflict between rebels and you know the mechanisms of, of a large organization it's never easy because the immune system of a large organization is strong however we see that there are several layers and the external world is a great indicator of how things are moving and if you're not able to cope cope with the pace of change on the outside let's this say that if the pace of change outside the company is faster than inside the company than the end is near. So we recognize that. So we know that we have to embark on that transformation. The question is how, how we make it a success, how we can be spotting successes outside that can we yeah, can be brought into the company and how can we change the mindset? I think we have a top team that is recognizing it. You can see that. It takes time. We have a little bit of delay versus the, uh, the fast trackers. But we, we are there. And, and also, it permeates through the markets. The markets, as we with, with other countries where Nestle is operating, are also extremely powerful to recognize those trends of transformation. And they handle them also in a way that it comes to the center. So we have the external world, and the external world through our kind of organization, local organization, and they help us a great deal to make sure that these things are taken care of. 
And that's a really nice perspective again. And, um, you know, maybe we just wrap up with a couple of topics that touch on this as well. One of them is how do we evaluate risk and perceive risk these days? Because, you know, for me, um, a lot of people have come to me and said things like, oh, I wish I could do what you've done and create a startup and a tech company. But I have a young family. It's too much risk for me. And, you know, for me, my perspective was that they work for a, for a company. They could... Uh, you know, because of departmental change or a reorg or, or changing the budget structure, they could lose their job tomorrow. They just wouldn't get the visibility on it. And risk for me is to, you know, have the the the, the thought that I might not um, explore my potential or reach the p- potential that I can imagine for myself based on my experiences and skills and my appetites and 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 passions. So, um, you know, maybe in the, you know in a in a in an environment where there's um, a need to manage and, and monitor risk, how do we redefine risk for a, for our supercharged technical, you know, technology enabled times? Yes, I will take the, the risk at the individual level, if you may. Yeah, good. And and what I used to tell to people is the biggest risk for you is your job, your current job, because this will be going away. And two ways. It will go away through evolution of technique, maybe. This I don't know, but may happen. But it will also go away from you if you stay there over and over. So if you're not moving, if you're static, that's a risk. So you are a risk, you are a permanent risk. And your only insurance against that risk is employability. And employability is grading up yourself. It's not like holding on and clutching to your job. That's the best recipe to become too expensive with a young person coming which, who will be more, expen- more um, able than you are. You are too expensive. They're cheaper maybe, but also they're much more efficient. So your employability is to make sure that you progress. Movement is the recipe for success. The rest, the risk is static. Yeah, it's really great. And, um, you know, it reminds me a little bit of I mean, one of the one of my heroes, all time heroes is a poet and, and writer and, and artist called William Blake, a British um, genius from 250 years ago. And um, he said he made the statements, I must invent a system or be a slave to another man's. And for me, uh, you know, I always thought, well, you know, there's no chance that's going to happen. So, you know, I, somehow I'm going to invent a system. And actually, it turns out that it's not as hard as many people think. Um, obviously, um, you know, we think of ourselves as maybe a microcosm of culture with our friends and family, but also in our business life as well. We are working in in smaller teams, more agile, more diversified, dis- heavily distributed, especially over the last few years. And obviously, there's space for culture to exist within a wider culture as well. Does that make sense? Totally, uh, totally makes sense. And uh, I, I like to repeat that is that we oftentimes see ourselves as static, but in reality, we always have been dynamic. And and when you look at what people are able to, is I I hear people telling me, you know. I don't know why I was chosen for that job. I'm not competent. And I tell them, you know what? When you joined university, you were totally incompetent. At the end of it, you made it. So people don't take you for a job. I mean, for the competency for the job, because you have known, they take you because they know you are able to reach those competencies. And 
And that promise, with that promise, they sell you hope and you sell them hope. In fact, at the end, the business is nothing else than selling future and selling hope. I love that. That's absolutely amazing. And I really believe in that as well. And just to give our example from our own organization, often we come across, uh, we have everybody who's joined us, you know, we've got about 80, 90 people from 25 nationalities. And everyone who's joined us has their own kind of joining story. And and it's always a kind of, a, you know, very personal story. And it's almost as if, um, you know, they f- they find the organization and we find them and it's almost love at first sight. And then we say, you know, you need to come and settle in and decide what job you're going to do. And, you know, it sounds kind of a bit of a cliche, but it's more or less how it works. We have a general competence in mind. We have a, a gap in the organization, but that person has to define because they know best what we need once they've had their eyes on it as well. Um, and I love this thing about hope because actually this is the basis of, you know, humanity's got it. We've got ourselves through uh, whatever reason, you know, industrialization into a situation where we have an environmental deficit to fill. Um, you know, we dug up um, the, the minerals from the earth and we use them, uh, you know, uh, flagrantly uh, to, to advance our civilization. And now, um, you know, we have to try to fill the gap that that gave us in terms of, a, a, you know, an advantage um, over the other species and so on. So this idea of hope and the, the relationship between the hope that's provided by the organization and the individual is a very nice model to understand the relationship in a wider sense between individuals and, and their work. Very much so. So one last thing, how do we make sure that we can support people to stay resilient? Because it's a tough time, isn't it? It's changing fast. Um, there's lots of new demands all the time. I'm going to give you the last uh, the last comments on this uh, this one. Well, I think uh, here I will pick up what you said before: is you have to let them trust in themselves and power them to be able to do what they want in the frame of what you offer, of course. But they should have that freedom, and you protect them. You badly protect them because when dire time comes, then you should not point finger point them. You finger point yourself because you protect them. And if you're not in charge of protecting them, they'll leave you. You know, that's, uh, I'm going to leave it there because that's a fantastic thing to leave on. And, uh, you know, I really hope this is inspiring. I feel certainly inspired myself. And, um, you know, this is the way that things should work. Um, and I'd just like to say, Bertrand, thank you so much for joining me today. I think it's been a great discussion. We got straight down to the nitty gritty of this and um, hopefully it's valuable to the listeners. And I look forward to speaking to you again and probably doing a follow-up at some point on the podcast. So thanks ever so much for joining and uh, thank you for the listeners to list- for listening today. Thank you, Dan, and uh, cheers to all. Cheers, thank you. Thank you.